In the, uh, in the true spirit of uh, the Gospel of Mark, which is what we're working through at the moment, Jesus continues to push people for a response. That's what we've seen the whole way along, is every interaction that people have with Jesus, he's pushing them to do something with him uh, in the book of Mark. And today is, is no different. So let me ask you a couple of questions, just to, uh, just to get you thinking, prime the pump, so to speak. Uh, what are you supposed to do? What's the purpose of your life? Uh, you see, a scribe comes up to Jesus and basically asks that question today. He says, what is the main thing that I'm meant to be doing? There's a couple of um, prevalent kind of philosophies uh, that have been kicking around in the last um, 50, 80 years. One of them's uh, nihilism. Anyone heard of nihilism? Look, nihilism basically means that there's, no, there's nothing that means anything. Everything's meaningless. Um, all values are baseless, nothing can be known or communicated. Uh, it's a pretty, um, pretty depressing philosophy. <laughs> uh, I'm not saying that people who are nihilists should do this, but uh, suicide becomes a particularly attractive option for a nihilist because there's no meaning for anything anyway and it's very painful. Uh, one of the ones that we're still very much in the grip of is, uh, is uh, postmodernism. Postmodernism actually says there's no ultimate story, there's no ultimate purpose except the one that you create. So you create your own meaning, but there's no ultimate meaning. And I've often wondered, I mean, there's some, there's some counselling therapies that operate on that principle. And I've, I've often wondered, like, if there's no ultimate meaning, is it even possible to have meaning about your own stuff if it has no ultimate meaning? I think it's almost impossible. Uh, and it's a good question, isn't it? What am I supposed to do? Um, Rick Warren in uh, A Purpose Driven Life quotes Bertrand Russell as saying, unless you assume a God, the question of life's purpose is meaningless. This, uh, this book has been a massive bestseller in the history of, of Christendom. Does anyone here remember it, Purpose Driven Life? You know, it really hit a nerve because what it really did is it hit that whole nerve of people are going, what the heck am I even here for? What's my purpose? Um, and it really spoke into that. Let me read the first few paragraphs out of uh, The Purpose Driven Life. It's not about you. The purpose of your life is far greater than your own personal fulfilment, your peace of mind or even your happiness. It's far greater than your family, your career or even your wildest dreams and ambitions. If you want to know why you were placed on this planet, you must begin with God. You were born by His purpose and for His purpose. The search for the purpose of life has puzzled people for thousands of years. That's because we typically begin at the wrong starting point ourselves. We ask self-centered questions like, what do I want to be? What should I do with my life? What are my goals, my ambitions, my dreams for my future? By focusing on ourselves, but focusing on ourselves will never reveal our life's purpose. The Bible says it is God who directs the lives of his creatures. Everyone's life is in his power. It's a good opening for uh, Rick Warren's book. So what I want to go to now is I want to go to the actual story from Mark that we're looking at today. So if you've got Bibles that you want to read, uh, this passage on, uh, through on, it's uh, Mark 12, starting at verse 28, or you can just read it from off the screen. And one of the scribes came up to Jesus and heard him disputing with one another. Now, if you were here last week, you'd know that there were two groups of people last week that went up and had a crack at Jesus, all right? And Jesus, in typical Jesus crafty style, asks them a question and exposes their assumptions and then basically owns them, <laughs> all right? So what you've got here is it looks like Jesus is probably still in the temple, Two groups have had a crack at him. A third one comes up. It's a scribe and he's going to ask Jesus a question. Now, 
What's interesting about scribes, just to help you out a little bit here, is um, the scribes are actually experts in expositing and interpreting the Levitical law from the Old Testament. Does anyone know how many uh, um, commandments there were in the rabbinic tradition in the Old Testament? Anyone know? 613 commandments. Okay? That's a lot. So you can imagine he's kind of a lawyer, scholar about the Jewish law and he's coming up to Jesus and he wants to get some clarity on something and it'll make complete sense. And seeing that he answered them well, he saw that Jesus answered the other guys well, asked him which commandment is the most important of all. Now if there's 613, that's a pretty, pretty good question. You agree with him? Good question. Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbour as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the, other scri- and the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbour as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now just stop for a minute. That's huge. In the Jewish system, that's huge, the amount of sacrifices. I think it was around about 60 AD, there was, uh, in the Passover week, there was about 256,000 animals slaughtered in one week. So do you see what this guy's saying? He's going, this thing that's such a big thing in our religion fades in comparison to the love of God. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And a classic uh, epitaph. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. It's like, don't go near that guy. It's probably just kill him. That would be a good thing to do. Let's not try to discredit him because he's going to hurt us too much. So you can imagine in the, uh, in the Jewish law, what's this uh, scribe doing? He's saying, look, there's things in the Jewish law that are heavy things that are really important and things that are light. And he's coming up to Jesus. He's saying, right, just tell us. Just give us the nub. You know, what's, what's the important? What's the kernel that we need to... Uh, to focus on and Jesus says it's the love of God. So today we're going to look at four things. We're going to look at the foundation for loving God. We're going to look at some obstructions to loving God. We're going to look at the nature of love for God and we're going to finish with the fact that God is intrinsically lovable. All right so I don't think teddy bear at this point but he's intrinsically lovable. Let's go with the first one, the foundation for loving God. Uh, What Jesus quotes is uh, he actually quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 4 to 9 here. All right, and just notice the way he actually lays it out there. Have a look at that scripture up there. The first thing that he says before he says what the important commandment is, is he actually says, um, "Here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one." Now, this um, whole statement here that Jesus makes was called the Shema, and it was something that was recited every morning and evening by every pious Jew. And one thing that you'll notice if you read some sections of the Bible is that the Bible often um, follows this pattern when it's talking about our obligations to God. So you notice there, if you look at that scripture there, what's actually happening is uh, Jesus is saying, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, therefore love him. All right? So what you find through the scriptures is that God, uh, time after time after time says, this is what God is like, therefore you do this. This is what God has done for you, therefore do this. This is how God saved you, therefore do this. So you get this sense that love for God is responsive, not initiative taking. All right? That's the way that it's meant to be. And this is what Jesus, I think, is saying here. He's uh, he's actually saying, because of who God is, 
you love him. And that's where we're going to end up today. All right? The last point of mine today is that God is intrinsically lovable. <laughs> because he is. All right? He just is. And he will inspire love in you for him. That's just the way it's meant to work. We respond to who he is. We respond to, who, to what he has done. He is the great initiator. We are the responders. God is God and we love him. Now let me give you a couple of examples in the Old Testament about this whole notion that love for God is reflexive. The classic one is the, old, is the Ten Commandments. All right? Top ten. Top ten list. All right? Have you ever noticed the start to the top ten list? Check this out. And God spoke all these words to Moses saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. What's he doing? He's going, this is who I am. This is what I've done for you. This is what I want you to do. It's like, I mean, a lot of us sometimes we can get in the position where we think, oh, I've got to drag myself up and do something for God. No, you never drag yourself up and do something for God. You never go and you get a dream that you're going to do for God. You are responsive. That's just the way it works. God continuously outpours his goodness, his kindness, his character and his personhood toward you and you respond with love. That's how it's meant to roll. Okay? And it's not kind of a pressure thing. It's not like, you know, you're going to go home and you're going to sit down and write a list of five ways that you're going to build love for God. Like seriously, if you did that, if you're married and you did that and your spouse caught you, that wouldn't be a happy time, would it? How am I going to... Because it's weird, isn't it? It's like... Love is something, I love, there's actions to love, I'm not saying that, but love is something that is a response to who someone is, and it is an action. I'm not saying some of you are going to go, oh, he's, he's on thin ice here, all right? I'm not saying it's not an action and that you don't do things to love people. You get what I'm saying? Like The way that it's, it's meant to work is you don't try to love someone. <laughs> you might do deeds of love towards someone and, and start loving them more because that I think that happens but you don't kind of try to love someone you don't sit down when you go home and try to love God it's like I'm just going to grip my teeth and love him you know God's kind of saying no you love me because you respond to who I am and do you notice let me go to another one Amos 3 in Amos 3 God speaks a judgment over his people all right Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I... Read that. Brought up out of the land of Egypt. Do you see that? So what you've actually got in Amos 3 is you've got this... Theologians call it a covenantal lawsuit, which is basically God had a relationship with his people. They turned against him. They broke the covenant that they had with him. And he's actually going to prosecute them. It's almost like a courtroom feel that Amos 3 has got, right? And what's the basis upon which God is actually going to judge his people? I brought you up out of the land of Egypt. I saved you. It's like I did something for you and you haven't responded with love for me. I actually loved you. And as a person, I am lovely and I'm loving you and you're not responding with love to me. We get into the back end of the New Testament in 1 John 4, verse 9 to 10. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Note, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. If you go to verse 3 to verse 19, what does verse 19 say? It says exactly what I've been saying to you. We love because he first loved us. That's how it rolls. That is just how it rolls. God's 
You see, God the Father loves the Son, Jesus. He loves us the same way the Father loves him. And then we love. See that? Like it's infectious. This is like the best plague you could ever get. All right? God's love. It's not like you go home and you've just got to, I've got to conjure up this love for God. No, what you've actually got to do is you've got to look at God, look at his character, look at his love for you, look at his love for the Son, and then just respond in love for him. Is that hard? See, some of you are going, oh, you've been here long enough, you go, it's a trick question. I mean, seriously, like on the surface of it, like no trick questions, is that hard? No, it's not, is it? So the worst thing to happen today is if you go home today and you just think, I've just got to work this up, I've got to make this happen, I've got to, I've got to somehow, I've got to love God, you know? You get what I'm saying? That would be weird, wouldn't it? Because I think what, what you're seeing here from Jesus is if you get God, you'll love God. If you get him, you'll love him. If you get his salvation, what he's done for you, you love him. That's just how it works. So let's go back to the question. If that's how it works, why is loving God so hard? You ever thought about that? Because it gets really... Is, is anyone with me? It's like sometimes it's really hard to love God. Now that's weird, isn't it? Isn't it like weird? Like the, the biggest being in the universe has such a benevolent, loving heart toward you as actually had himself nailed to the cross by a bunch of Romans and Jews that wanted to take him out and we find it hard to love him. It's strange. Second point. What are the obstructions to loving God? Look, if people were all loving God, do you think Jesus has to say this? <laughs> he doesn't, does he? I mean, in a sense, he's kind of like, listen, I have to say this because you're not doing it, all right? This is what you need to be doing. And this is obviously the scribe's not doing it because at the end, Jesus goes, he's getting close, but he's not quite there. It's just like, you need to love God with all of your heart, with everything. So I want to show you a clip from Over the Hedge, okay? Over the Hedge is a story about some forest animals. They uh, go into hibernation, they wake up and there's a new housing estate that's just been built right next to their forest. They come out of the forest and they see a hedge and they are just perplexed as to the nature of what this beast is. Anyway, here's, uh, here's a clip. Hammy, what weird thing? Oh, that weird thing. It's, uh, it's Vern. <clears throat> well, it's, uh, it's obviously 
Some kind of bush? I would be a lot less afraid of it if I just knew what it was called. Let's call it Steve. Steve? It's a pretty name. Steve sounds nice. Yeah, I'm a lot less scared of Steve. Oh, great and powerful Steve. What do you want? I, I don't think it can speak. I heard that, young man. Ah! <laughs> don't get over here right now. Okay. Tammy, get back here. But Steve is angry. I think it came from the other side of Steve. I mean the bush. I mean, jeez. <sighs> Look, there's only one way we're going to find out what this thing is and what this is all about. I'm going to go check it out. Steve ate Vern! Hi, Steve! You brought this on yourself. Stella, don't. I'm not eaten. I just tripped. <clears throat> I'm going to go over there. Just don't anybody move. Why did I show you that clip? I showed you that clip because it reflects the human propensity to just make something divine in your life. So it doesn't matter whether you're a Christian today or you don't follow Jesus. Uh, you find something to put in the divine place in your life. And this is one of the things that makes it really, really difficult to love God, is when we actually put things in his place. Uh, if you go back to what we looked at before from Exodus 20, um, it goes from that introduction about, on the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of slavery and moves on to the first commandment. And the first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. You see, love is really just another word for worship. When Jesus says that you need to love him with all of your heart, what he's really saying is that you need to place the utmost value on him. You need to center on him. Because whenever you speak of something that you love, you speak of the thing that you value. Uh, your affections reveal your worship. Uh, and what we actually find is if you read, if you've got time, you can go and read Luther's, Martin Luther's uh, longer catechism. He says this in his longer catechism, uh, you shall have no other gods before me. He says, where the heart is rightfully disposed toward God and the commandment, this commandment is observed, all the others follow. What's he saying? If you get the first one right, you'll get every other one right. Okay? So if you can go home today and you can love God perfectly, you'll complete and fulfill every single other commandment that God has for you. Do you get that? And the failure in all the other commandments comes out of the failure in commandment number one. That's what Luther's actually saying. I just want to read this quote. It is not possible for a human to worship God and at the same time love something else more than him because what they love both nullifies the worship they profess and reveals the worship they are engaged in, the object of their affection. When humanity values, they love. And what humanity loves, they worship. We can extrapolate this principle into practical realities and conclude that when humanity hopes, trusts, pursues, speaks, serves, loves and obeys, they are worshipping because each of these reveal what the, heart's, the heart loves. Do you get that? It's like what you're loving is what you're worshipping. That's the first thing that makes it hard to love God. Second thing is this. We're blinded. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 3 to 6 says, And if, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Now, what's this saying? It's saying that God made an angel. It's not exactly saying this bit, but I'm just giving you some backstory. God made an angel. The angel turned against God, wanted to be on his own. He became the devil. And one of his main missions is kicking around, just blinding people so they don't see how good God is. 
I believe from the depths of my being that if all of you here could see how good Jesus was, purely, you would not be able to resist him. You would not be able to not want him. You just would. So what's actually going on that's making that love difficult is that the devil's going around and he's blinding people. All right? And lest you think the devil made me do it, the scriptures also talk about other things that blind us uh, to God. One of those is sin. And we can see this in Hebrews 3 verse 13. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You see, when you turn against God, when you disobey God, when you love something else and you put it in the place that is meant to be reserved for him, you get blinded. I was talking to my mum um, yesterday, I think. Yeah, it was yesterday. And uh, she was telling me she had a cataract operation. What's a cataract? She goes, well, I got to the point at night time or at dusk, she said, where I couldn't see cars coming toward me. And right now you're thinking, what's her rego number? Uh, <laughs> but, but she's had the operation and you know what? She can see stuff again. Like she, and they replaced some lenses in her eyes. They, kind of, they, just got, they fixed her eyes up. But do you know what? Before that, she couldn't see stuff that everyone else could. You know, and that's, that's what sin does. And what sin does is it actually blinds you. So you can't see things that actually exist. And part of my job here today, and you can see that in the scripture from Hebrews 3 verse 13, is it's the job of each of us to say to each other, God is good. To say to each other, God loves you. To say, God is lovely. Don't be deceived. Don't be tricked. Don't be blinded by crap. By stuff that's just rubbish. Don't be blinded by that. Facebook is not as good as Jesus, all right? Some of you need to hear that. An iPhone is not as good as Jesus. Having a credit card with no limit that you never have to pay off is not as good as Jesus, all right? A big house is not as good as Jesus. Having a million dollars in the bank account is not as good as Jesus. See, that's what we're meant to be doing. Why? Because we have a way in the, with, with the indwelling sin that we have in us to go blind to seeing the goodness of Jesus. And you can kind of see that in the story that uh, Mark tells about Jesus and this scribe, you kind of get the sense that the scribe is getting really close, but he, he's, he's not quite seeing it. And Jesus kind of says that. He goes, you're really, really close. Maybe halfway through the cataract operation. What's another reason that we um, find it hard to love God? Well, loving God for his gifts. Who knows that there's lots of benefits to being uh, in Jesus' family? Who knows that? Heaps of them, right? Psalm 103 talks about him. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. He forgives all your iniquity. He heals all your diseases. He redeems your life from the pit. He crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. He satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the evils. Who here wants steadfast love and mercy that sticks like a barnacle to you? Who here wants a bit more youth? Yeah. See, they're good things, aren't they? But do you know what? If I uh, went and bought a bunch of roses for my wife, and I have done that, all right, lest you think this is an imaginary thing. Um, if I went and bought a bunch of roses for my wife, and I brought them home and I said, uh, Ange, I just love you so much. And these, these flowers remind me of you. They're beautiful. Is this, how am I going? No, I'm <laughs> Do you know what would be weird? What would be really weird is, she took, is if she took those flowers, was really blessed by it, and then went into the rumpus room in her house and, and didn't want to talk to me the rest of the night, but just hang out with the flowers. Do you get, do you get that? 
And I go in and I go, hey, do you reckon we could just like, watch a movie or something and just kind of sit down? She's going, no, I'm actually really happy with the flowers. Have you got something else that you want to do? <laughs> that would be weird, wouldn't it? And, but we kind of do that, don't we, with God's gifts sometimes is we go, that's really cool. I like the gift and I'll hang out with that, but I won't actually push through the gift to actually get to the giver. You see, there's massive benefits to being connected to God and you need to make sure that you're thankful, but don't stop there. You know, there's massive benefits to being in love. I mean, you can get jewellery, you can have the company. Some of the women are going, really? Can you get that? It's counselling later. Uh, there's some wonderful feelings. There can be flowers. Like, there's lots of benefits, but it's important that we don't stop and camp out with the benefits, but that we go through that uh, in our relationship with God, not just to what he provides, but to the centre of, uh, of what it means to love someone. See, David says, I think it's David in Psalm 16, he says, uh, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord, I have no good apart from you. See, this was the warning of the Israelites in the Old Testament. You can read it later from uh, Deuteronomy 6, verse 10 to 15. It actually says, uh, God says, when I bring you out of Egypt and I take you into the land of Canaan, a land flowing with milk and honey, be really, really careful that you don't forget me. When you get vineyards that you didn't plant and you get all this prosperous stuff, don't forget me. That's really important. John Piper asks a very probing question in his book, God is the Gospel. I'm going to read it today. He says, The critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted, and no human conflict or any natural disasters. Could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? How would you answer that? And the fourth one, uh, and I could just, figuratively speaking, go to war on this one, because uh, this just drives me nuts, but I'm just going to keep this really short. And it's the way that people actually turn the second commandment that Jesus talks about into a command to love yourself, all right? Um, you notice there, uh, and this is probably the fourth thing that I'm just going to highlight today and the last thing I'm going to highlight in terms of what's an obstruction to loving God. Well, people read that and they go, you shall love your neighbour as yourself. They say, see, you can't love anyone else unless you love yourself. You know, just so that you know, that was what got us into trouble in the first place, <laughs> all right? back in the Garden of Eden. So if someone comes up and they pedal that and they say, you have to love yourself, you just want to go, are you sure about that? Because uh, I think that's what actually sent us on the road to hell in the first place. Uh, let me read you some uh, stuff out of uh, a book that's called the, um, the Boost Your Self-Esteem Workbook. This is, uh, let me read, I'm going to read the Dalai Lama. I've read a bit of Dalai Lama lately. He's a lovely man. Um, and he's got some interesting things to say. I spent a whole day almost reading the Dalai Lama a little while ago. Um, this, this is his quote at the top. He says, If you don't love yourself, you cannot love others. You will not be able to love others if you have no compassion for yourself. Then you are not able of developing compassion for others. All right? And Buddha throws his, his bit in here too. You can search throughout the entire universe for someone who is more deserving of your love and affection than you are yourself. It's just like Bafarama happening right here. Is anyone else? Are you with me on that? It's just like, seriously? I hope I, hope I am, I hope there's someone better than me to love. <laughs> if, 
I know you guys are too, you're just too courteous. Um, and that person is not to be found anywhere. You yourself, as much as anybody in the entire universe, deserve your love and affection. And this author sees fit to add underneath that the story that we're talking about here. Or one similar to it, which is like where Jesus sums up the commandments in two. And the author's going, see, you've got to love yourself. I'm just going to take a deep breath. I'm... Look, if you want to talk some more about this, I'd love to talk more with you about this, okay? Um, but I just want to quickly go into Leviticus 19 just to show you that it's a whole heap of rubbish, all right, this whole idea, okay? What Jesus is quoting when he says, love your neighbour as you love yourself, he's actually quoting Leviticus chapter 19 in the law, okay? And I want you just to notice the difference. Now, up here, these people are saying, Jesus teaches you to love yourself, to value yourself and value yourself really highly, right? As you read Leviticus 19, see if you can work out whether it's actually saying that or something different. Here we go. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest, and you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard, you shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. What's he saying? There's someone who's down and out, don't pick up everything, leave it there so they can come along and pick it up and they'll be okay, all right? He's not saying love yourself and value yourself. He's saying, he's, he's saying just leave stuff for them, all right? You shall not steal, you shall not deal falsely, you shall not lie to one another, you shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. What's he saying? He's going, don't trick people. Now, at the end of this passage, he's going to say, love your neighbour as you love yourself. You know why? Because what God's saying here is you wouldn't want to be tricked. If you were poor and you were a sojourner, you would want to have someone leave some food lying around for you. You wouldn't like it if someone stole from you. You wouldn't like it if someone dealt falsely with you. So do to them what you'd have them do to you. Do you get, do you get the picture? So it's not like valuing yourself. It's Jesus saying, and Moses in, uh, God through Moses in Leviticus actually saying, what you need to do is you need to seek the welfare of other people. This is not about value and whether you feel valuable as a person. This is about seeking the welfare of someone else. And then it goes on and on talking about things. Like don't oppress your neighbour, don't rob them, all right? Seek their welfare, seek that their life goes well for them. Um, don't do injustice in court. You don't want to go to court and get ripped off, so don't do it to them, all right? That's, that's kind of the idea. And then we get right down to the last bit. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbour lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbour as yourself. I am the Lord. Quick summary. What do I think God is saying through Moses? Here's a whole bunch of areas in which I want you to handle people in these particular ways. But for anything else, seek their welfare like you'd want them to seek your welfare. Do you get that? That's what he's saying. This is not a boost your self-esteem tool. That's not what it's meant to be. It's meant to be seeking someone else's welfare as you wish that your welfare would go well yourself. Okay? And so that brings us back to the reality that our self-love is problematic. It's not a solution to our remedy. Sorry, it's a solution to our problem. It's not a remedy for our problem. It's actually the problem is that we put ourselves in the centre and love ourselves and don't see God. Is everyone okay? We're getting close. So we're going to go to point three now. 
the nature of the love for God. Just read this again. Love the Lord your God, Jesus says, with all your heart, emotions, your soul, your spirit, your mind, your intellect and your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbour as yourself. See, you know what Jesus is actually saying here? He's saying you need to love from the source of these, not that you actually go out and do these things. Like This is the source from which love needs to come from, not things that you need to go and do to prove that you love. You get what I'm saying? And Christianity is often like made, you know, sometimes you can get in, in Christianity, you kind of get this idea like, oh, okay. And even out of the sermon, you kind of go, oh, good. So what I need to do now is I need to go out and I need to work on loving God with my mind, with my emotions, with my spirit and with my strength. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying that love for God needs to spring out of those. So you don't go home and work out a 55-point plan based on those four facets. It just needs to spring out of there. It just needs to come from there. That is actually the source. And I want to just say at this point in time, you see, God loves the whole man, the whole woman, right? And it's because he loves the whole man and the whole woman that he has a whole claim over our whole body. Do you see that up there? It's like he loves all of you. There's not a part of you that he doesn't love. And because he loves all of you, you get this pattern? Because he loves all of you, you owe him all of you. <laughs> Which is easy for someone who's loving, isn't it? Isn't that easy? It's meant to be. What about this one? Another thing about the nature of love for God is that it's emotional. Now, it's not exclusively, sorry, it's not solely emotional, but it needs to be emotional. So let me ask you this question. Have you ever felt love for God? If you haven't, I think you've got a problem. It doesn't mean you need to throw the towel in, right? But you've just got a problem that you need to look at. Like if you came to me and you said, Pete, have you ever felt love for Ange? And I go, actually, we've been married almost 15 years and not once have I ever felt love for her. You just go... Well, you're not going to tell me to get divorced, but you might say to Ange, it probably makes sense for you. Because <laughs> that guy doesn't love you. But do you get my point? It's like, if I didn't ever feel love toward my wife, that would sig- signal that there's a significant problem in our relationship. And so maybe I could ask you this, if you don't mind. When was the last time that you felt like you really liked him? Was it yesterday? Was it a month ago? Was it six months ago? Was it 12 months ago? When did you find your heart just springing up and just saying, I really like him? I remember one of the hardest moments in my life. Uh, it was one of the lowest times I've ever had in my life. Um, do you know what all I wanted at that moment was someone to talk to me about Jesus? I didn't care what they said. I didn't care what they said because when they talked about him, my heart lifted, my heart sprang to life. How long has it been since you felt like that? Your heart springing to life, your heart responding to God. You notice here that, and I've said it all along today in bits and pieces, is if you love God like that, it's going to spill out to love for your neighbour. Because what you'll do is you'll love like God. How does God love? 
God loves without getting anything in return. So if the Father loves the Son, and then the Son loves us in the same way that the Father loves the Son, um, and then we love, the, we love God, what happens? We, we end up getting the same kind of love. We've got this same DNA. And so then all of a sudden we're kicking around with someone and they're just going, you are giving me no help here at all. You are a right royal pain in the horny, all right? And I'm getting no benefit out of you at all. And you just go, at that point, you've actually got the DNA of a love that can love someone else because it comes from God. Do you get that? It's really important. You've got to get in sync with that. When you love God for who He is, you love like God. Number four. God is intrinsically lovable. I want to show you this quick clip. This is Eminem on 60 Minutes. Listen to the lyrics of many of his early songs and you do get the feeling his music has been a painfully public way of settling scores, including with his mother and his father, who left him when he was six months old. I never knew him, so... You never, never met him since? Never met him, never knew him. Do you, you want know. to, or...? I don't know. I don't know. Some people ask me that. I don't think I do. I just, I can't understand how... If my kids moved to the edge of the earth, I'd find them. No doubt in my mind. No money, no nothing. If I had nothing, I'd find my kids. So there's no excuse. There's no excuse. One more time. Do you hear what he said? He said, if my kids moved to the edge of the earth, I'd find them. Do you know that's exactly what the gospel is? It's exactly what the gospel is. The gospel is good news. And the good news for you today is that humanity sinned against God in the Garden of Eden. We got kicked out of the Garden of Eden because we couldn't be there anymore and we went to the ends of the earth. And you know what God said before we went to the ends of the earth is he said, I'm going to come for you. I'm going to come and I'm going to rescue you. And isn't that the cry in everyone's heart? Isn't it the cry in everyone's heart that you desperately want there to be someone who's going to come for you? Someone who's not going to give up. You can hear that cry in Eminem's heart. My dad didn't come for me and I don't even want to know him now. Well, you've got a dad who did come for you and he did go to the ends of the earth and he sent his son and he took on human flesh to get you back. How could you not love him? How could you not love him? How could you not love someone who loves you like he does? How could you not love someone who is going to bring about justice and peace on the earth? We've just heard about what's happened in Paris. You know, you're not going to get... It shouldn't be that you get 70 virgins for killing 100 people in a theatre, should it? And you blow yourself up. Those people need justice. How could you not love someone who's going to bring justice on the evil that exists in our world? How could you not love someone who relates to you perfectly the exact way that you need? You ever relate to people and you just go, you irritate me. Like, have you ever had that? You just got to go, what you do all the time, it gets under my skin and it really irritates me. Do you know he doesn't do that? He doesn't get under your skin in that kind of way. He knows how to relate perfectly to you based on your personality to get the truth through and his love through to you. How could you not love someone like that? How could you not love someone who says that he's just going to be with you all the time and never forsake you? He's not a security blanket. He is the God of the universe who is unrestrained in his strength and his love toward you. 
This is not like you carry something around with you that's kind of nice but a bit useless. He is very, very useful in that regard. How could you not love someone who says that he always hears you every time that you pray? How could you not love that? And he says, I want you to talk to me so much that it irritates me. How could you not love someone like that? Some of you got kids and they just talk and talk and talk. And you just go, I wish that you just, can you just kind of synthesize that a little bit and just, you know, cut it down, truncate, and, you know, top and tail it and just kind of truncate it. God's going, no, more, more. And I will always hear you. How could you not love someone like that? How could you not love someone who knows your heart before you speak it to him? How could you not love him? How could you not love someone who says that he will defend you? How could you not love someone who says that he will love lovingly discipline you and shape you? Because you know you do stuff that's dumb. We're all doing stuff that's dumb and it hurts us. How could you not love someone who's actually going to take that kind of involvement in your life? How could you not love someone who's preparing heaven for you? I'm going away to get things organised and you're going to get to come and stay at my house. How could you not love someone like that? How could you not love someone who's your father, your friend? How could you not love someone who's your refuge, your tower of strength, your provider? How could you not love someone who brings refreshing to you? How could you not love someone who said that he's like a shepherd who had a hundred sheep and one of them went away and 99 were left and he leaves the 99 to find the lost one and that was you at some point in time? How could you not love someone like that? How could you not love him for his forgiveness, his fierceness? You know, sometimes you're timid and you're struggling and the fact that God is in a controllable way fierce is a great help for you. See, he's... How could you not love someone who's a lion of the tribe of Judah and a lamb? J.C. Ryle wrote this. But alas, how little fit for heaven are many who talk of going to heaven when they die, while they manifestly have no saving faith and no real acquaintance with Christ. You give Christ no honour here. You have no communion with him. You do not love him. Alas, what could you do in heaven? You know what Ryle's saying? He's saying, <laughs> seriously, why would you want to be in heaven? If you don't love Jesus, why would you even want to be there? I used to say that to kids at the school here when I used to teach. I just go, you want to be in heaven? Yeah, I want to be in heaven. Do you love Jesus? Eh, why would you want to be there? Like, that's going to be hell for you because it's all about Jesus in heaven. You know. Now listen, if you love Jesus, it actually doesn't matter what else is in heaven, does it? Like you just go, I'll be sweet. I know I'll be sweet if I love Jesus. This is what Ryle goes on to say, J.C. Ryle. It would be no place for you. Its joys would be no joys for you. Its happiness would be a happiness into which you could not enter. Its employments would be a weariness and a burden to your heart. Oh, repent and change before it be too late. 